0: Tonight, on this recorded session of Extension 720, another visit with one of the great figures in modern academic life and in modern uh, historical research. Uh, Bernard Lewis joins us, the author of the book What Went Wrong, which was an international bestseller, Uh, the author of much else. He is one of the leading experts in the Western world on what might be called the Eastern world, that is, on the culture, the civilization, and the history of uh, Islam. And his new book is titled From Babel to Dragomans. I'm not even sure that I pronounced that correctly, Dragomans, that is.
1: Dragomans is correct, yes. Uh,
0: A dragoman was a a mediator between the world of the West and Islam, I gather.
1: No, originally a dragoman is simply a translator. A translator. One who translates from one language Mm. to another. And then from translator, he developed into an interpreter, Mm -hmm. which is not the same thing at all.
0: So, uh, the title of your book, From Babel to Dragomans,
1: refers, I guess, to you. Or does it? Uh, Well, uh, it has been suggested. I must confess, I didn't have that in mind. Well, what did you I was thinking rather of the group of people of whom I see myself as one. Yeah. That's to say those who study a civilization other than their own. Try to learn languages other, not only other than their own, but other than those that are in common use in the society where they live, and thus try to achieve some understanding of a different civilization.
0: Your career was spent much around the Islamic world, but academically based at uh, the University of London, that is and correct. then from the in 1974, I believe, at the Institute for Advanced Study, and at Princeton University. That is correct, of yes. in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, but reading the introductory chapter to this book, which I should add instantly, is a collection of some of your work, ranging over some 40 years or so. Uh, reading the introductory chapter, which is quasi-autobiographical, I was rather delighted to d- discover that your fascination with Eastern languages really began with the training for your old bar mitzvah.
1: That is correct, yes. That's where it began, when uh, the tender age of uh, roughly twelve, I'm not sure whether it was late eleven or early twelve, uh, I was confronted, as I say in the book, with a difficult ancient Middle Eastern text, mm-hmm. which I had to study. In fact, a few lines from the Book of Leviticus, yep. uh, which I had because to... Because that
0: was the Haftorah for that day.
1: Exactly. Yeah, That was uh, the text which I had to read in tone. and. Uh, expound to some some degree. When
0: I went through the same, I studied for about a year, I suppose, and I read the text very well, intoned it properly, but I didn't understand it. It was just a matter of phonetics rather than comprehension. I
1: don't really know Hebrew. Well, well, I was always interested in languages, and um, at school my best subjects were history on the one hand, Mm -hmm. languages on the other. I was a disaster in chemistry, mediocre in mathematics and best, as I said, languages in history. And uh, this was another language, which was a delight. And uh, not only another language, but a language in a different script. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't started Greek yet then, that came later. But uh, this was another script, another language, and a language which was at the same time both classical and modern. It was like Latin, like French, and both at the same time. And uh, when I had finished my Bar Mitzvah obligations, I insisted on continuing with the same teacher and the same studies. I was very fortunate uh, in that my parents, I must confess more by chance than by design, found for me a teacher who was himself a scholar and could respond to this enthusiasm and initiate me into the, um, the higher levels of scholarship.
0: But then how did that lead you to Arabic and to Islam?
1: Well, it led from Hebrew to Aramaic, since part of the Old Testament is in Aramaic. And uh, then uh, when I was going to university, I thought I would like to learn some Arabic too, as a closely related language, both in the linguistic sense and in the cultural sense. So I started learning Arabic and got very absorbed in that. And then I found that the University of London offered a degree program in history with special reference to the Middle East including a requirement, not just a possibility of doing at least one Middle Eastern language. So this suited me perfectly and this was the degree which I took. It never occurred to me at that time that one could actually earn a living by doing this sort of thing. I was going to be a lawyer. I was duly enrolled at one of the four inns of court. Uh, You have to join one of the four to become a barrister in England. And um, When I had finished my B.A., I started on graduate studies in Middle Eastern history, and at the same time, uh, began my legal studies. And then two things happened at about the same time. In my legal studies, the next thing I had to do was real property and conveyancing, which I found monumentally boring. And in my Middle Eastern studies, the University of London offered me a job teaching Middle Eastern history. And... uh, The choice was not difficult, and I have never regretted it.
0: Then the war came along.
1: Not long afterwards, the war came. And
0: you were, after one misassignment, you were very quickly drawn into British intelligence.
1: Yes, my original assignment was in a tank regiment. And from there, when they looked at my files and found that I claimed a knowledge of Arabic, Mm -hmm. I was transferred to intelligence, yes.
0: In the introductory chapter to this, uh, uh, utterly uh, captivating new book, From Babel to Dragomans. Interpreting the Middle East is the subtitle, and it's just published by Oxford University Press. I say that to our audience. You know all these facts about your book. But um, uh, you you say, you indicate that you served in British intelligence and somehow had responsibilities concerning the Middle East, but you don't say what they were.
1: Well, well I'm not supposed to discuss Even those. now, no, even at this late date. No, no. I was concerned with current events in the Middle East. Sure. Not with history. (laughs) And uh, I spent most of the time in London. Uh, I did do a tour of duty in the Middle East, which took me to, uh, first to Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. In fact, I was in Cairo when the war ended.
0: You've been in Arab nations and talking with Arab dignitaries and Arab scholars, of course, all of your professional life. Yes. Indeed, there's a wonderful picture on the cover of this book. (coughs) You're sitting there on a carpet with two um, gentlemen in Arabic dress, in desert dress. But who are they?
1: That is in a tent in the eastern Jordanian desert. Hmm. Um, It was at a feast given by the late King Hussein, round about 1970, I'm not sure of the exact date, for the chiefs of the loyal tribes. And uh, the king and his brothers were the hosts, and they took a few guests with them, of whom I had the honor to be one. Uh, The person sitting on my left, that is, on the right, as you look at Mm -hmm. it, is uh, Prince Hassan, the younger brother of the late King Hussein. Uh And the other one is the chief of a local tribe. His father is a very prominent figure in Lawrence's book. Really? Which one? Oja, Sheikh Oja. I see. The seven pillars of wisdom. That is the son of the celebrated Sheikh Oja.
0: Uh, Have you had, you are of course um, Jewish and um, deeply involved in the study of Islam and of the civilizations, the various civilizations of Islam, have you had easy access during all these years of
1: scholarship to those countries and to those people? It was either easy access or no access. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a period immediately after the 1948 war when um, all the independent Arab countries simply refused to give visas to to people who declared their religion as Jewish. There was nothing furtive about this. It was openly announced in the the tourist literature. No visas for Jews. And uh, that meant that on my first tour of the Middle East after that, the only three countries I could go to were Turkey, Iran, and Israel. That's to say, the non-Arab East. Um, But after that, Um, Some, though not all, of the countries changed their policies, and it became possible to visit and travel. In
0: 1962, I think it was, I was invited to a conference in Cairo, where one of the panels was to be focused on research that, in fact, I had initiated, and which had sort of taken off and had interested other people. And, of course, I was intrigued and delighted, and said I would come, and only to then Be rejected by the Egyptian government told I could not
1: come. Yes, that was normal at that time. Yeah. Uh, Some of the governments even went so far as to demand proof. Um, There was a a line on the visa application form Mm -hmm. stating religion. Yeah. And uh, if they suspected that someone was Jewish but was putting down something else, they asked for a certificate of baptism. (laughs) And the idea of the Saudis in particular, Requiring a certificate of baptism seemed to me rather odd.
0: There are so many matters touched upon and um, approached with considerable depth in this fine book. These are articles and chapters and speeches. Um, What's the earliest? What's the most recent?
1: Um, The earliest would be round about 1958, if I Mm -hmm. remember rightly. Um, Two very early ones. One is a contribution to a volume of studies on places of worship. The editor of the series of the volume had the interesting idea of trying to explain religions through their places of worship.
0: Yes, the very first chapter after yes. the introduction is an Islamic mosque. That's yes. the
1: one. I chose a mosque, a famous mosque in Istanbul, and I tried to explain something about the character of the Islamic religion through the mosque. The other very early one was a contribution to a colloquium held in Washington about the same time on the Middle Eastern world affairs. The most recent one, I'm not sure which is the most recent one, but short articles uh, discussing the Iraq war.
0: Well, we're not going to focus on the Iraq war at the moment, but since you've written about it uh, on, uh, on recent occasions, uh, I should say that we are recording this on the date of May 24th uh, because I'm not sure when it will be played, though I trust it will be shortly after we hold this conversation. May I ask you, if only briefly, how do you judge where we are and what's how the whole thing is unfolding? At this very moment there's considerable uh, tumult and turmoil over the possibility that uh, we got in too deeply and played it wrong and uh, that uh, Bush is suffering some in the polls because of the failure of the Iraq War?
1: Well, to say the failure of the Iraq War is, I think, going too far too soon, though we do seem to be moving in that direction. I've been asked a number of times to make predictions. I sometimes give the general answer that I'm a historian. I deal with the past, not the future. But there's a more specific problem. Any kind of prediction must rest on the assumption that people will behave rationally. And. Uh, Nobody seems to be behaving rationally in the Middle East crisis at the present time. No rational calculation of their own interests. Um, the Iraq war, what is very striking is initially it went exactly as hoped and promised. The conquest was incredibly easy. Um, Iraq, there, there was virtually no resistance, certainly no popular resistance. The Iraqi armed forces melted away. Um the the American forces who came there were obviously welcomed as liberators with some caution, which is understandable, if one recalls what happened in 1991. But nevertheless, no opposition, and in general, a welcome. And somehow, during the time that has passed since then, um, the atmosphere has changed disastrously, and one must ask why. And I think the answer must be found in their perceptions of where we stand and what we're doing, which causes them some alarm. Remember what happened in '91 um, During the first Gulf War, to evict Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, President Bush Sr. called on the Iraqi people to revolt against the tyrant. They did. The Kurds in the north, the Shia in the south, they did revolt in great numbers. Meanwhile, we had given a Saddam Hussein, allowing him to retain the use of his helicopters, thanks to which he was able to crush the revolt brutally and violently. These were
0: helicopter gunships and they they used them as gunships. Exactly. They came in and strafed the Shia in the south and And Kurds in in the the north north
1: hmm. while we sat and watched. So obviously there was, shall we say, a certain weariness in listening to our promises and invitations. Uh, Even so, the welcome was palpable when we went in this time, but they were cautious thereafter, and a lot of things that have happened since then will reinforce that caution.
0: But that brings us, in fact, to what may be a far more long-lasting pattern in the history of uh, the contacts between and the relations between the western world, one which one might very well, for this purpose, call Christendom, and the eastern world, or that sector of it, which might properly be called Islam. And you have a major chapter in uh, From Babel to Dragomans" towards the end of the book, and it was based upon a speech you did only perhaps a year or two, at the most two years ago, uh, which is titled here, The Roots of Islamic Rage.
1: No, that was in nineteen ninety.
0: Well, that long ago. Yes. Well, it seems still seems to me very appropriate to the present moment and explains a great deal. Yeah. We will pause uh, in an instant for some commercials, and I would like to simply pursue that general theme. What is the long historical uh, account of East-West? hostility and east-west misunderstanding, East by east meaning here
1: Islam rather than
0: the uh, far Islam
1: way. and Christendom. Uh, one word about Islam. We use the word Islam in two senses. We use, we by we, I mean mm. the Western world and the yes. English-speaking part. One is a religion world. and two as... We use it as the equivalent of Christianity, namely a religion in the strict sense, sure. a system of belief and worship and so on. We also use it as the equivalent of Christendom, which means a whole civilization which grew up under the aegis of that religion, but which contains many elements that are not part of the religion, even elements that are hostile to the religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as uh, Christendom has its Ku Klux Klan, Islamdom, so to speak, also has elements which grew up within that civilization. Um, Let me try to clarify my point. Nobody in his right mind would say that Hitler and the Nazis came out of Christianity. But nobody could honestly dispute that Hitler and the Nazis came out of Christendom. I think one can make the same point with regard to some of these extremist and murderous terrorist movements. Which raises the
0: question of what is commonly called Wahhabism in the current uh, time. Let us pursue that historically and analytically right after we pause for these words. We return to Bernard Lewis, author of so much, but of the most recent collection, From Babel to Dragomans, Interpreting the Middle East, that is just published by Oxford University Press. It's a collection of many uh, chapters, articles, and speeches given by Bernard Lewis over the years. And we are uh, referring now back to one of the major chapters, the one titled The Roots of Islamic Rage. Uh, I learned from this that it is your view, and I'm sure uh, this is correct, that there was a time when, uh, in essence, the civilization of Islam had great superiority in terms of accomplishment, cultural richness.
1: Yes, in every every significant... Superiority
0: over Christendom.
1: Oh, yes. They were certainly more powerful. They were certainly richer. It was a more tolerant, more open society. It it had great diversity within it. Um, As late as the 17th century, people have, let me go back a step let's consider the 17th century and the last great confrontation between Christendom and Islam uh, Islam this time represented by the Ottoman Empire uh, that has often been likened to the Cold War of the 20th century between the West and the Soviets I think that the comparison is a good one but we get it the wrong way around if you look at the movement of refugees which is the really telling point the movement of refugees in the past was overwhelmingly from Christendom to Islam, not from Islam to Christendom. Uh, there were great numbers of refugees who fled from Europe to the Ottoman lands, Jews, of course, but also Christians. Flee- Cat- fleeing from what? From persecution. Catholics fleeing from Protestant persecution, oh. Protestants fleeing from Catholic persecution, and so on. Uh, that was the more open, the more tolerant, the more advanced society in e- every significant field of human endeavor. And then things went wrong, badly wrong, and whatever they did, they couldn't stop the process. It's uh, worth remembering and reminding our listeners that uh, one
0: of your more recent books, which has been widely read, is titled What Went Wrong.
1: Yes. This, by the way, has been translated into Turkish. It is being translated into Arabic. So, apparently, Muslims are also interested in reading my views on this matter. They as, should be. By the way, most of my other books have been translated into yeah. Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Indonesian. You,
0: you, I saw a quote in which you are, I forget the exact wording, but from an Arab newspaper uh, which speaks of you as uh, a worthy, ad, a worthy um, what, advocate, no, antagonist? <clears throat> no, this know.
1: was one of my earlier books, ah, yes. which was translated into both Arabic and Hebrew. Yeah. And I was rather amused by that because the Hebrew translation was published under the auspices of the Israeli Defense Ministry and the Arabic translation under the auspices of the Muslim Brothers. And they said what? And the introduction to the Arabic translation published by the Muslim Brothers, the translator says, I do not know who this man is, but one thing is clear. He is either a candid friend or an honest enemy. Yes. But in either case, one who disdains to falsify the truth. It's a wonderful commendation. (laughs) I like that, yes.
0: And that's the Muslim Brotherhood, who are a a right-wing recidivist
1: nativist organization. Yes, and forgive me, I didn't think the classification right-wing left-wing has much meaning in relation to these groups. But But they are ultra... ultra Ultra-religious.
0: Ultra-religious. And militant. And are the source of much that bedevils Islam and the West these very days. Al-Qaeda ultimately has its genealogy back to the Muslim Brotherhood. Certainly. Yeah. But, of course, Islam emerges only in our seventh century. Yes. Uh, How does it rise so quickly to be a civilization that outdoes the West?
1: Well, it had an advantage over Christendom. Christianity came into the lands of barbarism. Mm -hmm. It came from the Middle East to the then primitive and barbaric lands of Europe. Islam arose in a sort of outer darkness of barbarism in the Arabian Peninsula, and it came into lands of ancient civilization. Iran, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Egypt. So there was something to build on. Islam came to peoples who were already advanced in civilization. That gave them an enormous initial advantage. I think another advantage which they had arose from the tolerance which I mentioned before. that they were willing to accept and coexist With Not only with people of different religions, but also a much more searching test with different versions of their own religion. There has been throughout Islamic history this difference between the Sunni and the Shia. But it had never, not until very recently, it had never reached anything like the acrimony and the violence of the inner conflicts of Christendom. There are no equivalents in Islamic history. To the great wars of religion that convulsed europe in the 16th 17th centuries
0: what prevails in islam today or at least what we hear a great deal of which seems to have something to do with the continuing struggle between islam and the western world is a sense that uh, the western world uh, is ungodly and in essence violates the standards that god gives to us as required for decent moral existence and as well that we have been rapacious towards the Islamic world over well, from the Crusades to the present moment.
1: Yes, the, the second point, that of it, rapacity, is not really very serious because uh, the, the point is not conquering and exploiting. The question is who conquers whom. I mean for the first thousand years or so and they were conquering Europe. They were advancing into one Christian land after another, uh, Spain, Sicily, and then later into Southeastern Europe, as far as Vienna. Um, That's all right as long as we do it to them. It's when they do it to us that it becomes offensive. But the real burden now against the West is that it has become godless and impious and immoral and degenerate. This comes again and again and again, In the writings of the people associated with these extremist Muslim worlds. When
0: does that first emerge as a major theme in Islamic writing and in Islamic preachment? You
1: mean the godlessness of the West? Oh, fairly recently, I would say in the second half of the 20th century. Really? Yes. Actually, before that it's anti-Christian, which is not the same thing at all.
0: You say of the world of Islam, of the civilization, that they really had very little interest in a particular nation of the West,
1: namely the United States, until after World War Two. Right, the United States was very remote. It was not involved in any significant way in the affairs of the Middle East, and um, most of the immigrants from the Middle East who went to the United States were members of the Christian minorities, so that even there there was not very much contact. Um, the more intensive awareness of America really begins after World War II. But now we are the great Satan. How did we become that? Oh, simply by becoming the greatest power of the Western world. You see, the traditional perception is that the world is divided into the house of Islam and the house of unbelief. Unbelief means all those parts of the world that are not subject to Muslim rule. Um, the most important part of the house of unbelief is the Christian world. Because the Muslims rightly, I think, recognize Christianity as a religion of the same kind as their own. Namely, mm-hmm. a religion with a message for all humanity. All the other religions are, in a sense, local, regional, except or ethnic. Except for Judaism as well. Which is also limited. I mean, mm-hmm. Judaism uh, claims to have universal truths, but it doesn't seek to convert anybody. It accepts converts, but it doesn't seek them. Whereas Christianity, uh, and also Judaism, doesn't claim that its truths are exclusive. Uh, The Talmud says that the righteous of all peoples have a place in paradise. This is not the Christian or the Muslim view. Uh, Christians and Muslims share the belief that they are the fortunate recipients of God's final message to humanity, which it is their duty not to keep selfishly to themselves like the Jews but to share with all
0: humanity. Now, uh, an orthodox Christian, I don't mean orthodox in the Eastern sense, but uh, one who's deeply religious and sort of given to the fundamentals, uh, will take quite seriously the New Testament uh, injunction, no man comes to the Father but through the Son. Yes. uh, Which says, in effect, you can't really get to heaven, you can't get to paradise and to eternal reward except through Jesus Christ and taking him into your heart. Is there something, is that... Is there something comparable in Islam?
1: Yes, indeed. I mean, the, the way to God is through Muhammad and the Quran. And there is no other way. Well, they do admit that the predecessor religions, that's to say, Judaism and Christianity, uh, have a, an element of truth, mm-hmm. which, however, was distorted. Um, in the Muslim perception, Judaism and Christianity, were both true religions. Both the Jews and the Christians received authentic divine revelations. But in both cases, they proved unworthy custodians, and they corrupted them. The Jewish revelation was corrupted, so the Christian revelation came to put it right. The Christians did the same thing, so the Muslim final revelation came. The Quran is not a third testament to be added to the mm-hmm. first two. It supersedes both of them. Now, since the Jews and the Christians have an element of truth, therefore, they are entitled by law to an element of tolerance, not equality, but tolerance allowed to practice their own religions and even to conduct their own affairs Um, this does not include the right of sovereignty so it is the duty of the Muslims to bring the truth namely Islam to all humanity and to remove whatever obstacles there may be in the way namely infidel governments
0: the turn towards extremism in Islamic civilization is something that you focus on in the one chapter i have in mind and i want to come back to it in just a moment but i can't um, resist asking you whether you give any credence whether indeed one finds any scholarly merit at all in some work of recent years in which some people whether they're credentialed scholars or otherwise i don't know have claimed that there's no that in the search the equivalent of the search for the historical jesus namely the search for the
1: historical muhammad yields no evidence of his very existence Yes, there is a school of scholarship that uh, has doubted the very existence of Muhammad um, and uh, that that has, so to speak, um, deconstructed the Quran in incredible ways. Uh, As far as I know, this began in the Soviet Union and was taken up by other scholars in the Western world. And I I think that there are certain respects in which one could adopt a more critical analytical approach to the early historical traditions. But as an approach to the subject as a whole, no, I don't att- attach any great importance to it. You're pretty
0: sure that there was an historical <laughs> Muhammad. I think so, yes. And he had his vision in the cave. Well, I wouldn't go into details. but <laughs> Well, the vision was assisted by whom? The prophet?
1: You no, know, the, the, the archangel Gabriel. The
0: archangel, rather, Gabriel, who it, re, who requires him to begin to recite. Right. And he protests. I don't know how, mm-hmm. but he doesn't Gabriel squeeze him physically? No. And then out no. comes the beginning of the Quran? Right. It's a lovely story. Yes, it, it is. is. Coming back to extremist trends within Islam, in general, there are those now in the West with all of the troubles that we've been through in recent years. And, of course, with the uh, the hallmark event of uh, September 11th in mind, there are those <coughs> who think that basically Islam is a journey <coughs> In the extremist direction and is dedicated to uh, ultimately conquering the West, um, imposing its will, um, imposing perhaps even its rule, Sharia, upon the West.
1: On this point, has, uh, in particular, as also on many others, it's very difficult to generalize about Islam as a whole. When we say Islam, we are talking about more than 14 centuries of history, a billion and the third people, and the vast and rich diversity. Of historical, cultural, and religious traditions, so that I don't think one can very easily make a statement about Islam as a whole. Um, there is, there are more militant, there are less militant versions of Islam. In some periods, one prevails; in some periods, another prevails. Um, generally speaking, the the rule, as I suggested before, is that those who possess, those who profess, are. A, uh, Those who profess a monotheist religion based on divine revelation, even if they don't have the perfect final version, which is Islam, may be allowed a limited tolerance. Now, on the other point, the relations with the outside world, yes, it is the duty of Muslims to bring the benefits of Islam to the rest of humanity, removing whatever obstacles there may be on the way. These obstacles being, of course, infidel governments, which will prevent the Muslims from bringing the truth uh, to their peoples. But uh, in practice, uh, their attitudes were not greatly different from those of other people. What we have now is a growth of a new militancy uh, which derives from various sources, but particularly from Wahhabism. And um, that is a uh, totally intolerant of any other view, which is particularly opposed to Christianity, which they recognize, uh, with some justification, as the only serious rival, and uh, which, therefore, they feel they have to overcome. What provoked the, uh,
0: the spread, the diffusion of Wahhabism, and what provoked the, the rise of a terrorist anti-Western <clears throat> movement? Well, let's
1: start with Wahhabism. Wahhabism first appears in Najd, which is in northeastern corner of Arabia, in the late 18th century. This was a very remote, inaccessible area with very limited contact with the outside world. And it's named for its first precursor. Named after its founder, Ibn Abd al-Wahhab. Why did it come then and at that time? I think one can see that fairly well. The late 18th century is a time when things were really beginning to go very badly for for the Islamic world. In Europe, the Turks were in retreat before the Austrians, before the Russians. In Asia, in the great Muslim lands of South and Southeast Asia, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the British and the French were building up great empires. So it was a bad time, East and West. Why Arabia? Because in the days before modern communications... The Pilgrimage was the great annual event which brought Muslims together. They came from all over the Muslim world and of course exchanged news and views. Millions of Muslims went to the holy cities of Arabia and it was through that that an awareness began to spread of how badly things were going. Uh, Ibn al Wahhab shows a clear awareness of this and his remedy was a return to true Islam. He says, we have gone wrong by imitating the evil ways of the infidel, by trying to follow their ways, and the return—the only remedy is a return to true Islam. Now, this was an extremist form of Islam in a remote province. It would have had very little impact, if any, except for a certain combination of circumstances. The tribal sheikhs of that remote area of Najd was a family called the House of Saud. In the mid-20th century, no, before that, in the first half of the 20th century, the House of Saud gradually increased their power. And in the 20s, they were able to conquer the Hijaz and obtain control of the two holy cities of Mecca and Medina and, of course, of the pilgrimage. This gave them enormous power, prestige, and influence in the Muslim world. At about the same time, oil was discovered, in the newly created Saudi Arabian Kingdom which also gave them wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. So you have an extremist fringe group which suddenly acquires a central, in a sense, dominating position in the Muslim world. I try to explain this by an imaginary parallel. Imagine that the Ku Klux Klan obtained control, total control, of the oil wells of Texas and was able to use all the revenues from those oil wells to spread their peculiar version of Christianity in a network of well-endowed schools and colleges all over Christendom. That would be very much less than the damage that has actually happened in Islam because most of the countries of Christendom have adequate schools and colleges already. In many Islamic countries, the Wahhabi schools and colleges are the only ones that are available. But this raises so many
0: further questions And uh, one that I mean to pose, uh, that I pose now and mean to get your response to directly after some coming commercials is, why then, since Wahhabism, why then has Wahhabism say as represented at its ultimate extreme by by, uh, Bin Laden uh, and Al Qaeda, why have they turned against the Saudi regime? We return directly. To bernard lewis in further pursuit of this and related questions after these words and we return to bernard lewis we are not drawing from all of the rich book uh, in hand a wonderful new book titled from babel to dragomans interpreting the middle east published by oxford university press but we're drawing from one important question addressed at an, in a number of chapters in this book namely the difference between east and west between uh, the Uh, civilizations of Christendom and of Islam and the immediate question that I was posing a moment ago then is uh, taking into account the history of the rise of Wahhabism in relation to the rise of uh, the the Saud uh, dynasty and the consolidation of the power of Saudi Arabia why then is the ultimate exemplar of Wahhabism uh, namely uh, Osama bin Laden apparently dedicated to undermining and tearing down that dynasty.
1: Well, that's not at all clear. Uh, there's a good deal of evidence of, uh, shall we say, uh, cooperation of one sort and another between the Wahhabi extremists and the Saudi regime. And in fact, some Saudi funding. And Saudi funding. Uh, immediately after 9-11, a lot of people were removed from this country very quickly with the help of the Saudi uh, state yeah. agencies. Um, Obviously, in that, as in other movements, there are internal differences. They may feel at times that their leaders are not doing what they should be doing, but I don't see a serious breach.
0: Play the uh, counterfactual game. I don't know quite how to put this, but suppose somehow Israel had not come into existence as a Jewish state. You can make up the conditions under which it might Mm -hmm. not have happened. Would we have essentially the same standoff between Islam and Christendom, as we have at the moment?
1: Oh, I think it would be worse, because Israel provides a useful safety valve. Um, it gives them something on which they can let off steam, to which they can deflect people's anger and hostility, uh, without causing too much trouble. If there weren't in Israel, they would have to invent one.
0: What an interesting point. Uh, what, then, would be the major provocation? Just the alienation uh, towards
1: the West because of its... Uh, The feeling of having been surpassed and dominated. Yeah. And they would add exploited. And they would add as well because of the ungodliness of. Yes. Oh, yes. One of the major accusations is the spread of evil and ungodly ways. I mean, if you look, for example, take the case of the murder of Anwar Sadat. Now, the usual story is that he was murdered because he made peace with Israel. Yes, it is. Uh, The evidence that is simply not true it so happens we have very good evidence because the, the group of people who murdered him were arrested and interrogated at great length in an Egyptian prison. And um, they used a method rather similar to the French method of a juge d'instruction who sits with the prisoners in a fairly relaxed way and talks with them and interrogates them and the record is kept. Let me put this tactfully. An enterprising Lebanese journalist was able to find an obliging Egyptian official who provided him with a copy of the transcripts, so that the full record of the interpretation was published in the Lebanese press. Add to that the record of the trial, so we are pretty well informed what it was about. Now, the interesting thing is the nature of the grievances expressed what they thought they were doing. Um, when, In the very moment when they murdered Sadat, the leader of the group shouted, I have killed Pharaoh. Now, if making peace with Israel was the crime, Pharaoh is certainly an odd choice. Um, Whatever you might accuse Pharaoh of, being soft on Israel would hardly be an appropriate one. No, they meant Pharaoh in the Quranic sense, which is the same as in the biblical sense, as the prototype of the pagan tyrant who oppresses God's people. Uh, which that particular occasion happened to be the children of Israel. Um, Sadat's crime, according to these people, which comes out very very clearly, was undermining Islam by his alliance with the West, introducing pagan customs, pagan laws, pagan ways, pagan immorality, and thereby undermining and destroying Islam in Egypt.
0: That's the same as the Shah's crimes, isn't it? Exactly, exactly the same. The second in command of Al Qaeda was one of the murderers of Sadat, as I remember.
1: Well, there is an alleged connection, yes.
0: Well, he was one of the ones imprisoned, I believe. Zarqawi, isn't that? Uh, Zarqawi, yeah.
1: I'm I'm not sure of that.
0: In the other Jewish language, I imagine it's, it's another language you know, in Yiddish, the ultimate question is, Nu Vusved Zain. So what's going to happen? What will come of all of this? You are, as you say in the story, you don't predict the future. Still, do you have the any... Historians
1: even predicting the past is difficult, yeah.
0: To be sure. Do you have any sense that this gross um, confrontation and enmity uh, and mutual suspicion and mutual rage, because it now goes both ways. There's rage in the West yes, towards yes. Islam, certainly. Um, do you have any sense that it can be worked through, or is it really in uh, the uh, phrase, Uh, of uh, the Harvard political scientist, Sam Huntington. Is it really a clash of civilizations?
1: Yes, it is a clash of civilizations. I don't see any doubt about that, but I'm not using it in a general sense. I don't believe that civilizations have replaced states as the principal actors in international relations. This is a quite specific clash between two civilizations, Christian or now Mm post-Christian Western civilization on the one side and Islamic civilization on the other. And they are brought into collision more by their resemblances than by their differences. That is certainly an important element of our present time. Um, but I do see signs of hope In the, within the Islamic world, more and more awareness of what is really wrong with them, more and more interest in developing genuine dialogue, and most remarkable of all, more and more interest in democracy and democratic institutions. It's difficult to follow this, because remember that all these countries live under authoritarian regimes, and some of them under brutal dictatorships. So when people go there and talk to local people in the streets and pretend to give you an account of public opinion, this is utter nonsense. But one can do it. There are various ways, and nowadays it's even beginning to penetrate the media particularly those newspapers that are published abroad, and I can see many hopeful signs, small but important, of growing awareness that they are in a dreadful situation which is largely of their own making, and that they have to come out of it.
0: The the rationale for undertaking the Iraq War, the Iraq invasion, uh, was focused not only on weapons of mass destruction, that was one might almost say the cover story, it was the most obvious and easy justification, but was also, if you read the so-called neoconservatives who supposedly had some real influence in the shaping of that policy, the other major rationale was um, to topple the most tyrannical of all the available Arab regimes and to create an island of democracy, however difficult that may be, within the Middle East, will have tremendous consequences for all of the rest of the Middle East. Do you think that's... On that basis
1: that that was a reasonable undertaking? I think it was and to a certain extent one can even say it has been successful. There's been a lot of argument recently about how we allowed 9-11 to happen. Mm -hmm. What what people haven't asked is how is it that there hasn't been another one since 9-11? There hasn't been because the the leaders of the terrorist organizations have been put on the defensive. Right through the 90s they were on the offensive Uh, If you read their writings, which is not not difficult to do, if you can read Arabic, uh, a lot of broadcasts and publications of various kinds, they are dismissive and contemptuous of the West. They say the West in general, and America in particular, particular, has become degenerate. The Americans are soft and pampered. Hit them, and they'll run. And then they recite the litany Vietnam, Beirut, Somalia, and all the other attacks which took place. Uh, it is clear that their confident expectation was that what happened on 9 11 was not the, only the culmination of the previous sequence, but the inauguration of a new sequence on America's home ground, which would lead to the final victory of their cause. It didn't. Uh, nothing in their experience, past or present, would enable them to understand that after an election there's a change of government and a change of policy. They expected the Bush administration to react in the same way as its predecessor, by angry words and a few missiles sent off to remote places.
0: It is argued in the West by those who are critical of the policies of the Bush administration, uh, it is argued that by continued uh, support of Israel, for one thing, uh, against support of the Sharon Sharon government and its policies, uh, and by the Iraq invasion and the continued Activity in Iraq, we are giving the uh, the Wahhabist propagandists a great opportunity to uh, opportunity which they've seized and which they have used effectively to persuade millions of additional Arabs and more broadly millions uh, within the broad Muslim world of over a hundred of over a billion uh, participants. We've given them still more cause to
1: hate America and to hate the West. They will hate America whatever we do. The important point is that they should respect us. Um, what we see through the 90s and, uh, is a growing contempt. That is not is dangerous. Um, it is this contempt which has been dissipated but there are dangerous signs that it's now beginning to return. After 9-11 they obviously thought, well, it seems we were mistaken. They're tougher than we thought.
0: You're striking the Machiavellian note. It's better to be feared than to be loved.
1: Uh, the Emperor Caligula, I believe. Let them hate as long as they fear. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, I don't, obviously it's not good to be hated, but I think one way or another it is important to be respected. This attitude of contempt, which was very clearly expressed, is a very dangerous one. Now, consider what happened in Fallujah in March. This was obviously a very carefully staged replay of what happened in Somalia, in Mogadishu. You remember what happened there? Mm-hmm. The uh, Some American soldiers were seized, lynched, dismembered, dragged through the streets.
0: There weren't even soldiers, there were four contractors. Actually. No, no, this was in Fallujah. I'm talking no. about Mogadishu. Oh, in, yes. in Mogadishu,
1: sure. yes. Yeah. Mogadishu, And what happened in Fallujah was a replay of the same no. thing. The contractors were did not stray into Fallujah, they were enticed in. The cameras didn't just happen to be there. They were ready and in place. Yeah. And the expectation was that by replaying what happened in Somalia, they would get the same result, mm-hmm. namely the precipitous departure of the American forces. This is what happened in Somalia. This is what happened after the attack on the Marine barracks in Beirut. Each of these attacks was followed by more, because from their point of view, they're saying, it's working, let's carry on. Mm-hmm. What happened after 9-11 showed them that it wasn't working. The counterattack first to Afghanistan, then to Iraq, came as a devastating shock. That stopped all these attacks um, what I'm afraid of is that now they may be saying, well, it seems we were right in the first place, after all.
0: One can then perhaps look forward to a long-run standoff between the two civilizations, and ultimately, as that other civilization modernizes, would that be a fair word? Things might be diffused.
1: Modernizes, I think, is a fair word, but um, what I think is, one can be more specific about that. There are certain changes which are necessary to catch up with the modern world. Now, one which is much discussed among Muslims is the position of women. Uh-huh. Um, from the earliest discussions of what was wrong with Muslim civilization in Muslim countries, in other words, when they were discussing what did we do wrong, how do we put it right, many questions were raised but one of which was the position of women. And there were an an increasing number of Muslim writers, men as well as women, in fact, mainly men, because women didn't learn to write, uh, mainly men who said, well, how can we hope to keep up with the modern world if we deprive ourselves of the talents and services of half the population? And uh, they took the line, that the key to modernization is modernizing the status of women, therefore modernizing the home, and modernizing the earliest childhood education of young Muslims. I think this is a very important point, and this is one of the more hopeful features of Iraq. Of all the Arab countries, with the possible exception of Tunisia, Iraq, under regimes before Saddam Hussein, did most for women. I'm not talking about rights, because the word has no meaning in that society. I'm talking about opportunity, access, In Iraq, women had access to education, including higher education and specialist education. Uh, You find women in the professions, uh, doctors, lawyers, business people, professors, scientists, and the like. And uh, Saddam was not able entirely to destroy that. I think that's a very hopeful feature in, in Iraq.
0: And if one takes the difference between the sexes seriously, it may well be that What some psychologists have argued turns out to be true, that women all in all are somewhat more of a pacifying and civilizing presence,
1: and tend to hold the aggressions of men in check. Yes. There's a Turkish writer of the 19th century, who uses a very striking metaphor, too in fact. He says, we, meaning we, meaning in the Muslim world, he says, we treat our women at best like jewels or musical instruments. And then he goes on to argue against this, and he finally says, the result is that compared with the Western world, our society is like a human body that is paralyzed on one side.
0: Mm. That's
1: good. It is very good.
0: Uh, I thank you so much for joining us. Let's just quickly say once again to our listeners that the new book by Bernard Lewis is titled From Babel to Dragomans, Interpreting the Middle East,
1: published by Oxford University Press. Thanks very much for coming again. Thank you.